I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. We'll get into it now, but yes, yeah, we will. That's a lot. Oh, a lot is what's going through my mind right now, Brian. Uh, I feel like I am sitting down in like my first year of university in a class that I signed up for and I don't know what I'm in for. (laughs) We are, and I'm so excited about it. We are sitting down with Sarah Herzog, um, who is a population affairs officer uh, at the United Nations Department of Economic and Social Affairs in the Population Division. And Sarah, you are a, you're a demographer. You've been a demographer for the past 15 years. Um, and I, I, okay, the first thing I want to get off, off my chest, because I know our listeners know that, th- that this already seems way over my head, <laughs> but what is a demographer? What does a demographer do? Well, that's an excellent question, and it's one I get a lot. Uh, I think that uh, often when I tell people I'm a demographer, they think, oh, so marketing or advertising, (laughs) something like that. They hear about uh, demographics in the context of of market research uh, and not so much in the context of what I do, uh, which is the study of population uh, change, basically, population dynamics, how human populations grow or shrink or change over time. And there are three components of population change um, for for a country internationally. Uh, And those are fertility, mortality, and international migration. Those are the three ways that a population can grow and change over time. And and that is what we do. Uh, We study those dynamics and how they uh, shape the the size and uh, characteristics of countries with respect to their age structure in particular, and how those factors interact with uh, uh, economic and social development and also environmental considerations. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. So that's right already. I'm like, I'm feeling like this is in our wheelhouse. We're talking, <laughs> we're talking fertility. We know a lot about that. We're talking uh, mortality. That's a huge part of our show. Um, uh, the- it's funny before you, before you even go on, uh, Jerry, I was going to say the the marketing thing is funny to me because when I think of like demographics, I'm like, oh, yeah, Sarah, you'd be awesome at running Facebook ad campaigns. <laughs> and then I think back to uh, my first year of university, I, I went into public relations and uh, I thought like, man, this is going to be the coolest job. Like I'll, I'll probably get to relate with the public. And I did. I honestly went into the program knowing nothing about it. And after the first year, I was starting to feel like I was buying into this program. I was thinking it was going to be really interesting. But then we had somebody come in and speak to our class and they were like, yeah, I recently graduated from the public relations program and, and I work in a, in a communications agency and 
I'm kind of like the grunt in the office. Like I, I work like really long hours and I, you know, it's really tough. They, uh, they the really sold it they, to you, did they? They totally didn't sell it. And I <laughs> dropped out of the program after that. And so I was thinking, Sarah, do you oftentimes get asked to be this, a spokesperson for the, is it, is it demography program? For the discipline study? itself? Yes. Yeah. Because like you have such a cool job. And like, yeah. like you said, thinking about like, you know, sometimes people will think that you work for a marketing agency. Not that that's not a cool job, but like what you do sounds particularly Extra cool. cool. Yeah. Do you do you oftentimes get asked to speak about that? Uh, well, I do try to ask as an ambassador, <laughs> an, a sort of ambassador for the field, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I, you know, whenever I have the occasion to speak publicly about it, especially to young people, um, you know, in colleges and universities, I do try to. Um, uh, you know, encourage interest in the field. I think population dynamics are hugely important to, you know, virtually every every process that there is. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I hope that more people will be involved in the field. The number of population centers around uh, different colleges and universities globally is is growing, and there are definitely there's definitely room for more people to get involved in this profession for sure. Ooh. Yeah. So the the other thing that I wanted to kind of touch on, and, and and again, this is this is this is way less for you guys, the listeners, and way more for me, just so I can like have a grasp before we get into the nitty gritty. But um, I know that, uh, Sarah, you, you also have a, you hold a graduate degree in demography and population health sciences. And so I, I'm, I'm curious about like, um, and this might be a really broad question, but I'll throw it to you anyway. Like what, it, what, what, what is at the foundation of population health sciences? Uh, well, so I, I think that probably most people can relate to population health sciences, um, uh, you know, thinking about the the current COVID pandemic and sure. how the role that epidemiology has played in how we address that pandemic. So population health sciences is about the, the health of the group, the health of the, the population, and how do you improve the health of the population? So these are things like uh, population health measures or things um, like uh, uh, test and trace programs that were implemented to address COVID, mm. where, you know, we don't try, we don't, test and trace for our own individual health. We test and trace COVID infections in order to, to, to preserve the health of the population around us, right? Mm. Uh, and you can think of uh, vaccination campaigns in, in the same way. We talked about herd immunity and achieving herd immunity through vaccination campaigns. The, the campaign is, is not only directed towards protecting your individual health as a vaccinated person, but improving the health of the population overall by increasing the immunity level of the population mm. on average. Okay. Okay. My, uh, my, my simple brain would sort of go to like this, this idea that there's probably different sort of levels at which you look at populations. Um, how do you categorize populations? And is there like a sort of like broadest, largest scale of population? And then does it get more specific as you go down? 
Well, certainly the broadest population is that of the world, right? Um, <laughs> and that's at, my simple at, brain working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the UN Population Division, that is absolutely, you know, we that's where we start is we want to understand the population of the world. And yes, to understand the dynamics of that global population, one needs to start breaking it down. Uh, we break it down first geographically, right? To different regions and then countries within regions. And then, and then uh, it, it can be important to look at subpopulations within countries. And at the UN, we, we do less of that. We're more focused on the, the country level is kind of where we stop. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, um, you know, population health sciences and, and understanding more local level demographic trends, absolutely, it's important to break it down at the, at the uh, local level to, you know, first first administrative levels within countries, right down to, you know, cities and towns and, and even blocks for some, mm. for some uh, questions it really mm. depends on, depends on what your research question is, the, mm -hmm. the size of the population and the boundaries of the population that will be important. Sure. So, so before we started recording, I was, I was telling Sarah uh, about the fact that um, Taylor, who um, I, I guess we can say it, this is because this episode's dropping tomorrow. Yes, right. Taylor yeah. had his baby yesterday. Yeah. So at the, at the time of recording this, Taylor had his baby yesterday. So Taylor had his baby two days ago. Um, and uh, Taylor was the one that actually was so excited to put this together and have Sarah come in and talk to us. Um, and so, so I was texting Taylor yesterday. I was like, hey, man, we've got this conversation coming up tomorrow. I need your help. Like, what are we talking about, man? And uh, so I would just want to read what, what Taylor texted me, a little, a little uh, a blurb here. He said, I wanted to talk to a demographer because... There was this, this article that I was reading about China's declining population growth and the widespread effect of population change. And he said, he went on to say, I was curious about the health impacts of changing population, um, older populations becoming younger, like in Africa and vice versa, the effects on healthcare systems as population grow or decline. I think the most interesting thing might be a change in a population economic stat status and how that reverberates through health and social outcomes. And I know that, Sarah, when we reached out to you to, to talk to us, one of the things that you, you had kind of sent us for, for some like prep was this notion of, of like the challenges that are posed by population aging. Um, can we talk a little bit about like population aging and what does that mean and how does that have a direct effect on the nations that are dealing with this, this notion of the challenges facing faced with population aging. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, a big, important question. Um, and I think so, so population aging refers to an increasing proportion of older persons in the population, I guess is a, is a, um, a handy way to kind of think about it. Uh, and, I, and I, I just want to uh, emphasize that it is happening everywhere. This is a universal mm. phenomenon. The proportion mm. of older persons in the population is increasing in virtually every country in the world. So like oh. older population growing, younger population lowering? As a proportion. So, okay. Okay. Uh, gotcha. yeah. So... So population aging is is driven by by two factors. So in the beginning of our conversation, I mentioned the three components of population change, um, and the two that really are, are the biggest drivers of 
population aging are fertility and mortality. Mm. So when fertility declines, we talk about fertility in terms of the average number of children a woman would have over her lifetime. Um, and so when fertility declines over time, eventually you see the proportion of, of children in the population also start to decline. So, I mean, it, we, we can think about this fertility transition as a part of a demographic transition that has been happening around the world. It is, has, has begun at least in every country um, in the world. In 1950, the, an average, uh, a woman was, was expected to have approximately uh, five children uh, in, in her lifetime in the oh, world. Wow. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, that was like the average. Holy moly. Yes, uh, but that that has declined over time. Um, and such that today, the average number of children per woman is around 2.4 children per woman over her okay. lifetime. And in a number of countries, the fertility rate has fallen below 2, um, or 2.1 is what we, we call the replacement level of fertility. And that's the level, that's the, num the average number of children per woman that would be needed to sustain over time to have um, zero population growth over the long run so okay. that a population would exactly replace itself. Yes. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a stupid question? I'm sure it's not stupid. How, how on earth can someone, how on earth can you calculate 2.4? <laughs> well, average. so this is an average. Right? <laughs> You're like, what does 0.4 of a person look like? Four. So this is it, and this is where we get to the the idea of a population science, right? It's all averages over the population. So of course, no actual woman is having 2.4 children, but on average, we say that over over uh, the the expected or average value is 2.4 children. And, and so so 1950s, we were looking at, you know, we were looking at five children per household. Today, we're looking at 2.4 to 2.1. At, at what point did the UN start to see this shift? Like, was it very gradual or or was there like a really key point where it was like, whoa, what happened there? Well, it's it has happened in diff at different times and at different pace in, in different countries, depending on, on their country context. So in high income countries, the, the decline um, in fertility really uh, happened, you know, in, in the 1950s or even started before that um, mm. with uh, industrialization, access to contraception, uh, education of women, job opportunities for women that had led uh, for women and couples to desire smaller families over time. Um, and they had the information and, and means of, of family planning in order to achieve their fertility preferences. Mm -hmm. That transition uh, be, began later in some of the middle-income countries and in, in many of the low-income countries. We're still at the very beginning of that transition. Mm -hmm. So in some, uh, in, in some parts of the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, the fertility levels remain much higher. So a, a woman in sub-Saharan Africa on average is expected to have more than four children per, uh, in, over the course of her, her mm -hmm. life today. Mm -hmm. uh, but but that has declined. It was you know, more than six children per woman um, in sub-Saharan Africa in the 1950s, and, and now it has declined to to, to four. Con considering um, like the the COVID pandemic, I know that uh, during the pandemic, both Jer and I got dogs, and um, not like 
we didn't get them because we didn't get COVID of, dogs. Yeah, we didn't get COVID dogs. We were, like we, a lot of people, we would have got dogs. Yes, co- yes, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm not lumping us into those types of people, but I'm just curious. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with those types. <laughs> no, of people. No, there either. is something wrong because you oh, know wow. why? Because dogs are being given up to shelters <laughs> okay, now because okay. people are going I mean, back a, to work. That's another podcast anyway, that for is, another day. But I'm, I'm I'm curious, Sarah. <laughs> did did we see a rise? in a, like or any sort of impact in population trends because of the COVID, COVID pandemic where people just like Birth staying home fucking all the time or yeah, something? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a lot of, especially early on um, in the, the lockdown period, there was a lot of talk about how yeah. this would would definitely lead to some kind of baby boom nine months later. And <laughs> and so far, the evidence is actually showing the opposite. That, oh, um, oh, 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 for, okay. And, and we, we, you know, we don't have information uh, globally yet to, to um, be able to comment on this quite yet. There's usually a, del- a lag in the, the, right. the time that um, uh, these these processes play out and when we have the data to be able to describe them. Mm. But so far it's looking like, um, you know, actually we see reduced fertility uh, Mm. to some level related to the COVID lockdown, not Um, increased. I'm I'm also curious about um, talking about these, these factors and how, um, you know, the, the population is aging in terms of composition. I was reading the report from a couple of years ago that the UN projects that by the end of the century, we're going to reach almost 11 billion people on this planet. I'm curious how the population is growing at the same time that people are are not having as many kids, but people are getting older. Like how it sort of hurts my brain to try to think mm. about how does how that works. How does that work? So it is um, an, an interesting phenomenon, and it has to do uh, in large part to something that we call our demographers, we call it population momentum. And population momentum refers to the tendency for a population to continue growing, even if fertility falls to below the replacement level. A population continues to grow as a result of its youthful age structure. So if you think of, you know, if um, so if today's children are more than their parents because their parents had uh, um, more than two children per woman on average. So that if you think of the today's generation of children being a larger generation than that of their parents, even if their fertility level is less than that of their parents mm. were because there are more of them. Right. Their, okay. their children will yeah. be more. Yeah. Does that make sense? Wow. Yeah, it does. So yeah. it's uh, so I, yeah. So in wow. in doing our projections, we always kind of we always uh, decompose them into to different components, and and we've looked mm. at this population momentum scenario. So mm. uh, we we project that from the 7.7 billion people on the planet today, that the world's population will rise to about uh, 9.7 mm. billion at the mid-century, adding two billion, and about two thirds of that growth we estimate is is inevitable, meaning that it is it is related to population momentum. It is a consequence of the current age structure of the population. So even if fertility were to plummet, we would still expect to see most of that growth between now and 2050. If wow. Taylor was here, he would say something like, sounds like compound interest or something like that. <laughs> like, There's I, something to that. There's, I mean, there is, I, I can see, yeah, I, I think that, that that's probably so an right apt now. comparison. <laughs> I, uh, I imagine though that, that like that, like 11 billion people on this planet, we already hear lot. about like that overcrowding, like especially with like population migration, like people coming to the cities and 
you know, we even see, and we live in, in Price. Halifax yes. and, and in, in our city, a lot of people have been moving from rural areas and coming to the city. And so like development has been skyrocketing, um, and it has all of these, all of these uh, profound effects on, on the city. So I imagine adding, you know, what is it? 4 billion more, 3 billion more people to the planet is going to have its challenges or consequences. What does that look like? Yeah, I think, I mean, you've touched on an important issue there, which is that it's not just about the number of people, but it's where people are located and what kind of resources are available to them, right? Um, and, And I think that that's really key. I mean, yes, we are urbanizing at the same time that we are growing. More than half of the world's population lives in urban areas today, and we expect that to rise uh, quite a bit in the in the coming decades. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it's also important to take note that almost all of the growth of the world's population anticipated over the coming decades will happen in uh developing countries in poorer countries. Mm-hmm. And this is where um, you know, we talked about the sustainable development goals and the idea of, um, of uh, population trends in relation to economic development, social development, protection of our of our environment. This is where uh, I think that we need to give quite a bit of attention actually to the the idea that the places that are going to experience the greatest population growth are the places that are already struggling to maintain the well-being of their people, the people mm. who are already there, right? So this this compounds that challenge to have more people um, concentrated in, in places that are, are um, deficient in terms of resources. So, I, I, and maybe <clears throat> maybe you kind of in part answered what I'm about to to kind of dive into here, but so correct me if I'm wrong. What, what I'm what I'm gathering is that this um, this notion of population aging is is a byproduct of of um, a lot of like seemingly really great things, right? You, you were saying that there's there's increased education and employment opportunities, um, in particular for like women and and, and girls. Um, you know, couples or individuals deciding <clears throat> the timing or the amount of children that they want to have. Um, we've got like in, in improved health and and longevity. Like these things sound really great, right? And so in turn, we're going to see the the population. This, this population aging trend happened because of these things. But what are the, what are the, what are the negative ramifications? Like what are the challenges that come with population aging? Yeah. And I like how you put it. I mean, it is challenges. I'm not sure that I, I wouldn't characterize them as negative ramifications. It's only negative sure. ramifications if we fail to anticipate and adapt to those right, changes that right. are coming. Right. So that that is is not prescribed. It is, that would be a consequence of our failure mm-hmm. um, to to act accordingly. But you're right that the population aging is an inevitable consequence of the greatest success stories that humanity has seen in terms of improving health and longevity around the world, increasing access to education, especially for women and employment opportunities, and ensuring that that women, couples, individuals have access to sexual and reproductive health. So uh, population aging should absolutely be seen as a sign of success. The challenges are that, you know, we have um, uh, 
uh, economies that are structured around a labor force that is between certain ages, right? I mean, between say age 20 and 64 is what we often talk about the working age population. And the challenge with population aging uh, comes from a, a population that is older than the working ages. So say, say 65 or over that is growing in size relative to the population in the working ages. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we talk about dependency ratios or old age support ratios, where how many older persons require support relative to the number of people who are in the productive or working ages. Um, and that is something that um, you know, individuals, societies, families, governments need to think about what kind of care, what kind of resources need to be set aside. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. For older persons. And how are we going to ensure that they're, they're, uh, they are sufficient um, in order to, to support older persons in their old age? Right. It, it feels really challenging to create change. I, I, think, of, I think of sort of comparing and con contrasting it to... Um, um, climate change and trying to plan and adapt for something that you know climate change is happening now obviously but like when you hear people talk about the impact of climate change they're talking oftentimes in like you know five years down the road or 10 years down the road and you know in our democratic political systems here we oftentimes have people elected for like four-year terms and they're making decisions to like make the best impact or position themselves to be reelected four years down the road. So it feels like oftentimes like this sort of, there's like a, a sacrificing long-term uh, effects to, for the short-term gains. And I feel like with, you know, things like this, it sounds almost like it, it will take one step backwards to take two steps forwards. Um, does that sound accurate? I, I think that I, I think that a lot of people share that perspective. I mean, a lot of the uh, policy changes that various countries are exploring in order to adapt to population aging are not very politically popular. Things mm -hmm. like um, increasing the statutory age at retirement. Yes. You know, this is something people have worked for decades expecting to retire at that certain date, and if that age is increased, then people are looking at having to work extra years before they're able to, to collect their pension. And that is definitely politically uh, a not mm. very popular position to have to take, but it's what some, some um, governments are doing in order to ensure that their pension systems remain solvent. Um, 
you know, there's also an issue of inequality related to uh, retirement and old age. And how do you how do you ensure that um, you have a fair and equitable <laughs> system of pensions and expectations of work, you know, uh, for people who who work in the knowledge economy, maybe uh, increasing the age at retirement isn't quite as onerous. I and mean, these tend to be wealthier, higher educated people who have quite long life expectancies um, and their um, uh, jobs are not very physically demanding. And so maybe uh, uh, increasing retirement age uh, is, is more palatable for them than for people who work in very uh, physically intensive jobs for uh, people who uh, have had less resources, whose life expectancies are, are not as long. So increasing their retirement age would, would uh, reduce significantly the, the yeah. amount of time that they are able to spend in retirement. So uh, I think that these are very tricky issues to deal with. Um, mm. And uh, you're, I think you're absolutely right that it can make it uh, um, something that Politicians certainly would rather kick down the road than deal with uh, totally. proactively. Th yeah. This all this all makes a lot of sense to me in terms of like how population aging, you know, if we do, if we don't put the policies in place that that we need to, looking down the line, uh, could have a, a a really great impact on older generations and the people that are getting older. Um, but are there are there are there ways that population aging could have like a a, a potential impact on younger generations coming into the world? Oh, well, I, so what do you, do you have in mind? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I like, I, I really don't know. Like I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm sort of wondering, like, is there something that just like, I'm not thinking about that, like population aging could have a, uh, you know, a, a potential negative effect on the health, health outcomes of younger generations or, you know, even, even like from a, a, an economical standpoint, is there, is there any kind of issues that, that might stand out that could potentially impact younger generations just well, as much as older generations? So, so there's a couple of things. Like one thing I think about a, a lot as a demographer, um, uh, and also someone in middle age, I'm somebody who has young children and aging parents at the same time. And it's, uh, it's uh, a, a very common uh, situation. Uh, now that uh, uh, our life expectancies are such that many of us have aging parents who mm. are expected to, to live for several decades. Um, I, the uh, uh, distribution of care responsibilities, I think, right, and what we yeah. sometimes call a sandwich generation. And how does that affect <laughs> the family formation and childbearing decisions of um, the, the generations to come who will be faced with caring for growing numbers of older persons in their families and in their societies? And how will that affect their reproductive decisions? How do you balance that care of the older persons and the younger persons and mm -hmm. pursuing a career and education and all of, all of the different opportunities that are available to people? What does it mean to have care responsibilities for uh, 
a large, large numbers of older persons in your family. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think of it from that perspective. I also think of it from the perspective of, you know, uh, children having their grandparents and great grandparents in their lives can have a hugely beneficial effect yeah. for children's development. So in terms of, of children's health and family health, um, the, the extent to which there are, are more opportunities for inter, intergenerational engagement and exchange, I think um, can have hugely beneficial uh, outcomes for, um, on, on a number of levels. Mm. I, I imagine um, I, another thing I think of is we had a uh, uh, somebody speak to us about geriatric care a uh, number of months ago now, and they were talking about um, the long-term care homes in Canada compared to long-term care situation in Denmark. And so mm -hmm. we were talking about this in the context of COVID at the start of the pandemic. And, and we learned that the majority of, of uh, our elderly population that needs care in Canada go to long-term care homes. Whereas in Denmark, they have uh, more of a system around home care, providing quality home care. And it, we were looking at the cost and sort of the benefit to longevity and quality of life for mm -hmm. uh, people in, in that type of care. And I was thinking when I was hearing this, I was like, man, it makes so much more sense to provide quality home care than having like building a facility and and trying to operate the facility. Because in addition to just providing like good quality care doctors and nurses, then you need to provide staff for the building to maintain the building itself and it's it it can become financially uh, a a big burden on on taxpayers, and so when I heard about this, I was like, we should just do like why don't we just adopt that model and and do that? I I imagine there's a lot of sort of examples that you see, especially looking globally at at this situation and and the different ways that different countries are sort of addressing some of these problems. Are there any like standout ways that you can think of that countries are working to address? the aging population and some of these challenges that they're facing in a way that like you think that they'll, they'll get it right. Well, I think it's early to say. Um, I think that we're still looking for uh, really great examples. And I'll say, like, I'm, I am not an expert in um, elder care uh, right. um, <laughs> in any way. But, you know, I think as with as with uh, many things in, in population health, it's important to have um, a variety of options available to people to address you know, whatever specific situations they have. I mean, I think home care can be uh, hugely beneficial to both the individual receiving the care and the family, and as you say, the taxpayer and the society. Um, but, I, you know, I think sometimes that's not an option, depending on, you know, what what challenges the an individual and a family are faced with, you know, not mm -hmm. everyone uh, lives close to their family, not everyone has kin available who are able to offer a kind of home care setting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, um, you know, at the UN, we talk a lot about leaving no one behind, right, and having, having um, programs in place that uh, you know, ensure well-being for all, uh, for, for all situations. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, we'll have to ensure that we have those types of models that, that really offer a diversity of, of programs and settings um, that can help care mm -hmm. for, for an aging population. I'll mm -hmm. also say that, 
you know, population aging uh, really underscores the need to invest in health over the life course, right? That in order to have a healthy old age, that starts with a healthy childhood, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and preserving health at, at all ages so mm -hmm. that, um, so that in old age, we have as healthy a population as, as we can. Mm -hmm. You I, like the work that you do and, and, and these issues that you, um, focus on they, and, and you kind of touched on this earlier, Brian, like relating it to climate change, it, they, they seem so overwhelmingly grandiose, you know, like it, like it, it, to, to think about this stuff from the context of the entire planet so Every many variables person, so many variables <laughs> so many numbers and one of the things that that we've we've kind of like touched on danced around throughout the conversation but haven't really like nailed down what it is is this uh the the the, the idea of sustainable development goals uh, through the through the un um and uh, before we started i i didn't know what the, i didn't know what that meant um and and we 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 kind of listed out all of the sustainable development goals and there, th there's a lot of them, um, and that you know they include things like end poverty, um, end hunger, uh, good health and well-being, quality education, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, affordable and clean energy, uh, decent work and economic growth, industry innovation and infrastructure, reduced inequalities, uh, sustainable cities and communities, responsible consumption and production, climate action, life below water, life on land peace and justice and strong institutions, like all of these things where I'm going 17 massive things, <laughs> 17 of the most massive things that exist. And so I, I guess my, my question to you, Sarah, I, I, I mean, as, as a lay person who, who doesn't do this work, when I look at that list of, of sustainable development goals, like when I think of goals, when I make, when I make my life goals, I, I write down goals where I'm like, I could probably do that. You know, like I, could, I could probably reach that. Whereas I, I read these goals and I go, I mean, is Superman like real? Is Superman going to show up and like fix all these problems? So, so my question to you, Sarah, is do, does, does the, does the work that you do sometimes feel really overwhelming? Like how do you, how do you maintain an, a, a positive outlook when when I think it's pretty obvious, like right now we live in a, we live in a world where things are, where things continuously seem to be, especially in the last few years, things continuously seem to feel really daunting and really tough. Mm -hmm. How do you maintain an optimistic view of the future when staring down this, this list of very audacious goals that have been set by the UN? Yeah, I, I agree that it is a, a incredibly ambitious list. I also think it's achievable. Mm. Uh, perhaps, maybe, you know, I think probably we are not going to achieve all of the goals on the timeline we have set out for ourselves, but I think it is worth trying. I believe it is worth trying. Um, these goals and the targets that underlie them, they've, what, they're what the international community has identified as being the minimum necessary to ensure that no one is left behind. And I think I try to keep that in mind when I think, I mean, this, this, these are not lofty goals. These are necessities. Mm -hmm. Everyone has opportunities and access and uh, can, can live their best life. Mm -hmm. um, so 
I, you know, I think the UN, just by virtue of the type of institution it is, it attracts optimists. Um, and so I, and I, I guess I include myself uh, among those, uh, the optimists that, that um, have decided to, to dedicate my life's work to the, to the work of the UN and multilateralism and, um, you know, I- improving, improving life uh, for everyone, including those who are most left behind. Mm. And and I think it is achievable. I think if you look back to, so the sustainable development goals were preceded by the millennium development goals, uh, which were a smaller set of goals um, that uh, was adopted in the millennium declaration in uh, the year 2000 with uh, an end date of 2015. And while we didn't achieve all of those goals, some of them are, are, are still a part of the, of, of the sustainable development goals. In fact, the goals around poverty, hunger, education, um, a lot of the health-related goals have grown out of the Millennium Development Goals and have been uh, rolled into the Sustainable Development Goals. We didn't achieve all of those goals by the target date of 2015, but we made more progress than anyone ever thought that we could. Mm. And the reason that we were able to do that is because of the collective action of the international community and the commitment and the accountability that was that grew out of that millennium framework. Mm. And so we've tried to expand that and replicate it and build on it and do better with the sustainable development goals. And and we are making progress. It's not as fast as we might like. COVID has set us back quite a bit. We have more than 100 million people who've been pushed into extreme poverty as as a result of of the COVID pandemic. We've lost maybe 20 years of of progress on girls' education in particular, in part because of the COVID pandemic. So we definitely have some challenges facing us that that can feel intractable. But I I think that, um, you know, with global solidarity, with continued collective action, I believe in the capacity of humanity to collectively address these really hard, really big problems. Mm. And um, I think the sustainable development goals, that's what they represent to me. Hell yeah. That, I mean, <clears throat> I got to say, it's these types of conversations that I love having the most on the show because when they're done, I, I come out of it feeling like, Oh yeah, hopeful. We're, we're, I think we're going to be all right. Yeah, okay. I think we're. I think we're going to be okay. I, I think it's we important. we will be all right, but we mm. have to work hard for it. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. this is it won't happen without everyone's participation. And I think climate change is is one mm-hmm. of those challenges that we need everyone on board. Yeah. We can be all right. This is a challenge that we can address, but it requires collective action and it requires everyone. Mm. Is there um. To, to kind of frame, you know, to find the silver lining of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is you know, really hard to do, but to to try my best to do it. Do you feel like there's a sense of hope in like looking at what the global community is capable of when we come together and align ourselves around solving a global issue? I do. I mean, I think, you know, historically, pandemics have been kind of a catalyst for collective action in that way. And I think we saw it after the the Spanish influenza. I think we saw it around HIV AIDS that, and now we are seeing it again with COVID that this, uh, we face a, a common threat and we come together um, and unite to address it. It doesn't mean that 
we've done it perfectly. That's, I mean, certainly there, there are things that we could have done better, but I do think that, um, that it has shown that we can come together and, and address common problems. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah, I gotta, I gotta say, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to sit down with the two of us and, and help us grasp the, the work that you do and, and give us a little bit of insight into what it means to be a demographer. Um, this has been endlessly fascinating and we we really this has just been an absolute treat yeah, i can see why taylor cares so much about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah good job taylor good well, job, thank dude. you very much for having me it's been a pleasure <laughs> For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.